This podcast is a story of the attack on a party of police officers by Ned Kelly and his gang in 1878 at Stringybark Creek. The narrative has been developed from historical sources. They are reminiscences of a Victorian mounted constable, a narrative of the Kelly gang and other bushrangers by Thomas McIntyre, evidence from the 1881 Royal Commission on the Police Force in Victoria, historical guidance from the Victoria Police Museum, and content produced as part of the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site. McIntyre savoured the cup of tea offered by the McColl family, the owners of the farm. He'd never tasted a cup as sweet as this, but there was no time to waste. A neighbour, who happened to stop by the farmhouse that afternoon, offered to transport McIntyre in his buggy to Mansfield. After a short respite, McIntyre was on the move again. He went straight to the home of Henry Putris, the police sub-inspector of Mansfield, to report what had happened. Putris opened the door and was horrified to see a bloodied McIntyre. McIntyre recounted the horrific attack, the ambush, murders of Scanlon and Lonigan, and the unknown fate of Kennedy. Putris was shocked. He ordered McIntyre to go to the Mansfield police station to make a report. A search party was immediately organised. Amazingly, after McIntyre had completed the report, he got changed and joined the search party, despite being in no condition to do so. He was throwing up everything he ate or drank. The search party consisted of McIntyre, Putris, a constable Allwood, and nine civilians from Mansfield. On the evening of the 27th of October, they headed back to Stringybark Creek. Going back to Stringybark Creek was going to be incredibly difficult in the dark of night. The search party decided to head for a sawmill owned by the Monk family about 20 kilometres out of Mansfield. Edward Monk knew the bush in the area intimately and would be the best chance of guiding the party to the campsite that night. The search party's progress was slow, not gaining more than walking speed to accommodate McIntyre's dire condition. They reached the sawmill at about 9.30pm that night. Edward and Anne Monk were asleep, but immediately sprang to action to help. They had known both Kennedy and Scanlon. They were devastated to hear that the quiet, good-natured Scanlon had been murdered and that Kennedy was still somewhere out in the bush at the mercy of a gang of bushrangers. Despite the dangers of reprisal against the family for helping the police and the vulnerability of their isolated farm, Monk was ready within minutes to join the party. Two employees from the sawmill also volunteered to help the search. McIntyre was again sick after trying to stomach a cup of tea offered by Anne Monk. She tried to get him to stay at the mill and rest, but he wouldn't, not until he could find and bring back the bodies of the murdered men. Rain began falling as the party left the monk's property. Rain clouds covered the stars, making it impossible to see in the swallowing darkness of the bush. Edward Monk was the only reason the group weren't immediately lost in the wilderness. McIntyre later said that his skill at navigating in the dark and rain was a mystery to him. He only had the contour of the country or the direction of the watercourses to guide the party. Somehow, Monk got them to Stringybark. As they approached the camp, the group decided to split in two. McIntyre, Putris, Monk and his two employees, Constable Allwood and a Dr Samuel Reynolds would go in and search the clearing, 
leaving the other half of the party camped a short distance away. They approached slowly and cautiously. McIntyre believed the gang had thought he was shot as he rode away and could have died in the bush. There was every chance they were still at the camp. Thankfully, it was deserted. The group spread out and began looking for the bodies of the men. In the darkness and steady rain, it was difficult for McIntyre to not only see, but also orientate himself. He didn't know where the camp was within the clearing. The men scoured through the scrub but found nothing. They were searching in the pitch black for so long that McIntyre began to worry they would doubt his story. He asked the group to find the tent. If they could find that, he would be able to find the bodies of Lonigan and Scanlon. After a short while, Monk called McIntyre to a charred patch of earth, littered with scraps of cloth. It was the remains of the tent, burnt by the gang. McIntyre immediately knew where the two men would be. Whatever doubts he had about the group believing him disappeared as he led them to Lonigan, sprawled dead in the wet ground, pale and cold. McIntyre moved further down the creek and found the body of Scanlon. The two bodies were a horrific sight to view in the darkness. The group quickly focused on finding Kennedy. It was still unsure if he'd been taken hostage like McIntyre or suffered the same fate as Lonigan and Scanlon. The men combed through the clearing, hoping to find any sign of the sergeant, but found nothing. After hours of travelling and searching through the bush in the darkness, the group decided to wait until daybreak and continue the search. Monk returned to the rest of the party stationed near the clearing, leaving the searchers to settle in for the night. They decided not to light a fire and give away their position and endured the night in the cold. With nothing left to do but wait for morning, McIntyre finally collapsed. He was completely drained, his body aching for rest. By this stage, he'd been awake for almost two full days. He fell asleep in the wet dirt and leaves, the rain pattering down. McIntyre was jolted awake. It was morning and the other half of the search party had arrived. The rain had stopped. When the light was good enough, the group began an inch-by-inch inch search of the bush to find Kennedy. They moved up and down the creek, but their efforts were in vain. There was no trace of the sergeant. The group did discover that the Kelly gang had ransacked the camp before leaving. They took horses, food and money. Scanlon's ring had also been stolen. The search party turned its attention to removing the bodies of the two murdered policemen. The bodies of Scanlon and Lonigan were each carefully tied to either side of a horse and slowly carried out of the camp. The party headed for Monk's sawmill and from there would transport the bodies to the morgue at Mansfield Hospital. McIntyre's mind turned on the journey back. How would this ordeal end? Where was Kennedy? Was he still alive and held prisoner? Or was he murdered and the body still hidden away in the bush somewhere? How close had McIntyre come to being strapped to the horse carrying Lonigan and Scanlon? Would it have been better if he was? News of the murders had spread throughout Mansfield by the time the bodies arrived at the morgue. Dr. Reynolds performed the autopsies on the 29th of November. 
On Lonigan, he found bullet wounds on the left arm, the left thigh, along the right temple, and the bullet wound through his eye. The shot killed him. Scanlon's body revealed bullet wounds on the right hip, to the sternum, right shoulder, and on the right side of his body. A bullet had shattered a rib before puncturing his lungs and resting at the sternum. The wound would have caused massive internal hemorrhaging. Thomas Lonigan and Michael Scanlon were buried later that day. Lonigan's wife Charlotte travelled from Violet Town to Mansfield for her husband's funeral. She arrived only just in time. The search for Kennedy continued over Tuesday and Wednesday, but there was still no sign of him. The community of Mansfield was reeling from the news the two policemen were killed. People were terrified that the bushrangers would attack the town while the police were out searching for the missing sergeant. If they were brazen enough to kill two policemen, they'd have no issue attacking the town when it was vulnerable. Waiting helplessly in this purgatory was a nightmare for Bridget Kennedy and her five children. With such an extensive search being made of the camp and surrounding areas, without a single piece of evidence being found to indicate his fate, it was possible he was alive. The prospect of her husband being found murdered was excruciating. Not knowing which outcome would eventuate was torture. The uncertainty was just as awful for McIntyre. The nightmare of the attack would have played on his mind almost constantly. He hoped the sergeant, his friend, would return. He continued to help the search. He issued warrants for the arrest of the Kelly brothers and two other unidentified men for charges of murder. He also arrested a man threatening people if they helped police. Isaiah Wild Wright, a known criminal in the area, was threatening that anyone who joined the search to find Kennedy would be shot. McIntyre wasn't in the mood to negotiate when he found Wright yelling in the street. He wrote in his manuscript, I drew my revolver and said to him, I've come to arrest you. I've seen my mate shot. If you don't walk quietly over to the lockup, I'll shoot you. Wright turned pale, and without saying a word, he held out his hands. On Thursday, word finally came through. Kennedy's body had been found. It was discovered about 800 metres from the campsite, lying face up amongst some ferns at the foot of a tree. It had been covered in the sergeant's cloak. The discovery was an end to the tormenting wait endured by the police, Kennedy's family and the community. It was heartbreaking. McIntyre positively identified Kennedy when the sergeant's remains were brought back to the Mansfield morgue. Dr Reynolds again performed the autopsy. He found bullet wounds in Kennedy's right arm and in the body under the arm. The shot that would have taken Kennedy's life was delivered to the chest at close range. The wound tore clear through his body. Michael Kennedy was laid to rest on the 1st of November. The entire town of Mansfield attended his funeral. After the three policemen were buried, McIntyre was ordered to the police hospital in Richmond, just outside Melbourne. He didn't want to go, nor did he want the police escort that was issued in the anticipation he'd be assassinated on the way. He arrived on the evening of the 1st of November 
to recover from the nightmare. In his manuscript, he told that while he was at the police hospital, nearly a pint of blood was drained from his body that was no longer circulating due to the bruising. His back was completely black from the injury. On the same day, Parliament took the extraordinary step of passing the Felons Apprehension Act. The law stated that those responsible for the murders had until the 12th of November 1878 to surrender themselves to the Mansfield Police Station or they would be declared outlaws and they could be shot on sight. But Kelly and his gang didn't hand themselves in. Sergeant Michael Kennedy was born in Westmeath, Ireland and left behind a wife and five children. Constable Thomas Lonigan was born in Sligo, Ireland. He too left behind a wife and four children when he was buried. According to McIntyre's manuscript, after the ordeal, the government voted to pay in full the salaries of the two men to their widows. Bridget Kennedy and Charlotte Lonigan were both pregnant the last time they saw their husbands alive, but lost their unborn children after learning of the murders. Constable Michael Scanlon was a native of Kerry Island. Unlike the other two men murdered, he had no family in Australia and his personal items were never claimed. His dog remained waiting for his return. In April 1880, 18 months after the police murders, the community of Mansfield dedicated a memorial to the slain men to commemorate their sacrifice. The Kelly gang wreaked havoc on the communities in northeast Victoria in the two years following the Stringybark Creek murders. They robbed banks, held entire towns hostage, murdered an associate of the gang, Aaron Sherritt, whom they believed was working with the police and were planning on derailing a train near Glenrowan carrying policemen before they were finally defeated at a siege at the Glenrowan Hotel on the 28th of June, 1880. Joe Byrne Dan Kelly and Steve Hart all perished. Byrne was killed when a bullet severed his femoral artery. Despite being adorned in the famous metal armour, he was struck in one of the few exposed parts of his body and bled out. He was also found wearing Michael Scanlon's ring, which was stolen from the policeman's body almost two years earlier. Dan Kelly and Hart had died inside the hotel. Their bodies were burnt beyond recognition when the building was set alight in order to flush them out. Kelly was captured after the siege. He had been shot and sustained a number of wounds. McIntyre arrived at the Benalla Watch House at seven o'clock in the morning. The senior constable there escorted him to see the prisoner. Ned Kelly was lying on a mattress. McIntyre wanted to speak with the bushranger now that he was caught. He wanted some kind of closure. He wanted to hear from Kelly that he'd done what he could to save the other men at Stringybark. McIntyre recalled the conversation between the two men in his manuscript. He entered the room, accompanied by the senior constable. For a moment, Kelly didn't realise who it was, in fact mistaking him for another policeman. The sight of Kelly brought the nightmare of Stringybark Creek flooding back 
yet it was strange to see him like this now. He was so commanding with his gang and his guns. Now he seemed so quiet. You remember the last time we met, McIntyre said. Didn't I tell you then that I'd rather be shot than tell you anything about the other two men if you were going to shoot them? Yes, Kelly replied before turning to the senior constable. McIntyre said he'd rather be shot than bring the other two men into it. I suppose you had a shot at me when I was getting away, said McIntyre. I don't think I did, replied Kelly. We never thought you could get away or we would have shot you at once. Why did you come near us at all, McIntyre demanded. You could have kept out of our way when you knew we were there. McIntyre would likely have turned this question over and over in his mind since he fled the camp. The Kellys had the advantage of knowing the country and knowing where the police were. They potentially could have evaded the search party as easily as they had done for so many months prior, but they didn't. You would have soon found us out. If we did not shoot you, you would have shot us, he said bluntly. This was as much as McIntyre would get from the prisoner in this meeting. Perhaps he had done all he could have at Stringybark, yet the question still plagued him. He would spend the rest of his life reconciling a decision made in a split second. He reflected on his situation when he accompanied Kelly to Beechworth, where a preliminary trial took place. McIntyre stayed in the Beechworth jail in a cell opposite Kelly during the trial. His evidence was deemed so important in securing a conviction that there was a fear he would be assassinated by Kelly's sympathisers. The Beechworth prison was evidently the safest place for McIntyre to stay. Kelly was confined in a cell on the ground floor. McIntyre, up a level, across the corridor, almost directly across. The gallows loomed between the two. McIntyre couldn't help but note the setting in relation to the two men's fate. He wrote in his manuscript that it was not alone Ned Kelly who had to stand his trial, but that I also had to stand my trial, the charge against me being a moral one. The positions we occupied represented the charges upon which we were to be tried. Kelly was on the ground floor, charged with a breach of that secular law as old as the human race. Thou shalt not murder. I was in a more elevated position, charged, morally, by some of my fellow citizens with want of courage. While McIntyre grappled with the consequences of his actions, Kelly seemed far more certain of his. He believed the police weren't sent into the bush to arrest him. He believed he was going to die at their hands if they found him first, and therefore had to engage. Ultimately, this belief became self-fulfilling. On the 11th of November, 1880, Ned Kelly was hanged. He had been tried for the murder of Thomas Lonigan, found guilty, and executed. McIntyre's health deteriorated severely by the time Kelly was dead. He left the police force in 1881 and turned to writing. He had by this time married Eliza Ann Fowler in 1879, and the couple would have eight children. Ned Kelly's legend became greater and greater after his death. He became an icon of Australian culture, the most infamous outlaw in the country. But for Thomas McIntyre, and the families and friends of Michael Kennedy, Michael Scanlon and Thomas Lonigan, their part in the Kelly story is one of incredible pain. For the rest of their lives, they lived with the trauma and heartbreak 
of the police murders at Stringybark Creek. You can find out more about the Stringybark Creek incident at the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site, located about 40 minutes' drive northeast of Mansfield. There you can find detailed information about the policeman and how the attack unfolded.